From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, how to deal with North Korea and its nukes. Kim Jong-un is sending a message here, and it's crystal clear. He wants a full-fledged nuclear capability, and right now, nothing is slowing him down. North Korea may claim the launch and its space program is peaceful, but outside the country, it's seen as a front for a long-range missile test. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. According to a psychological profile put together by U.S. intelligence, Kim Jong-un may feel compelled to prove just how tough he is in order to make up for his inexperience. The president is right now on board Air Force One, headed back to Washington after his summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. We had a very good feel right from the beginning, and we were able to get something very important done. People were saying, what's he like? He's got a very good personality, he's funny, and he's very, very smart. He's a great negotiator. Our guest today is Jung Pak. She's a senior fellow at Brookings and a former CIA analyst. Jung, thanks so much for talking to us today. Let's start by discussing the problem of North Korea and its nukes. Okay. Talk us through it. You know, for decades, it has been a core priority of U.S. foreign policy to limit the spread of nuclear weapons. And yet, analysts predict that by next year, North Korea will have as many as 100 bombs. So what's going on here? You know, I think when we look at North Korea, it's poor. It's got a repressive system. 40% or 50% of its people are malnourished or undernourished. There is widespread stunting because people can't get enough food. You might have as many as 120,000, 200,000 people in prison camps. And yet they're still relevant. And North Korea's relevance is in the fact that they're a disruptive entity in East Asia, where we have most of the world's economic growth. And we have leading that country, a 35-year-old who is paranoid, power-obsessed, and has nuclear weapons. And so that is the problem here, is that how do you deal with a state like North Korea that refuses to engage in any meaningful way, and the regime has a death grip on these nuclear weapons that they're not willing to give up? And let's talk about why this problem has proved so stubborn and persistent. It's because it's not like the United States has been ignoring this issue, right? Presidents going back at least to Bill Clinton have been struggling to deal with it. Jonathan, I've been looking at some of the old CIA declassified documents going back to the 50s, you know, when 1950, when North Korean forces attacked South Korea. And North Korea, even without nuclear weapons, has been a national security concern for the United States. Um, And it's because it had a large army that was forward deployed toward the peninsula. We had Kim Il-sung, the country's founder, that was intent on reunification by force and who was not willing to give up his own power and consolidating his power through repression. Um, and through military means. Through mass purges and an ideology of isolation and self-reliance, he would eventually create one of the most secretive, totalitarian and unique states in history. And sometime around the 1960s, he started thinking about nuclear weapons. He saw this as the ultimate guarantor of his rule. ...to godlike status, a cult of personality the world has rarely seen. 
Now, you've written that a former colleague of yours at the CIA once said that trying to understand the North Korean problem is like working on a jigsaw puzzle where you have a mere handful of pieces and your opponent is purposely throwing pieces from other puzzles into the box. What does that mean? You know, I get the intent or the spirit of that message um, is that there are lots of pieces out there. There are lots of information out there. And you as the analyst, you put those pieces together to have a story. But when you look at a puzzle, you have the box and you know what it's supposed to look like. The problem is that we don't know what it's supposed to look like, right? And our adversaries continue to throw in extra pieces, different pieces, different colors, shapes, sizes to throw you off. You know, it's common for every administration to do a policy review on North Korea. And I think that's one of the key differences and and one of our key weaknesses. Um, North Korea, the Kim dynasty has thought about U.S. relations and about its regime survival and geopolitics, et cetera, from a dynastic perspective, whereas we talk about it in terms of four years or eight years or every presidential election. Um, it's harder for democracies to have a consistent policy on an issue like North Korea. I am pleased that the United States and North Korea yesterday reached agreement on the text of a framework document on North Korea's nuclear program. This agreement will help to achieve a long-standing... the negotiations did not fail because the gaps were too wide, but because the level of trust was too low. ...endanger the people of Northeast Asia. They are a blatant violation of international law, and they contradict North Korea's own prior commitments. Now, the United States... And you think consistency would have helped in this case? Well, I think North Korea takes advantage of inconsistency. And this is one of the things that the North Koreans tell our diplomats and other people all the time is that, why should we trust you guys? Because you throw away various agreements. You never follow through. Why would we give something up if we can't trust you to follow through on your end? And that's, you know, that's our strength as a democracy, but it's also a weakness when we deal with North Korea. So it sounds like we can summarize the problem um, by saying the following. How do you deal with a nuclear armed state that's building more bombs all the time, um, that represents an existential threat, and yet is not interested in any of the typical inducements that we offer in cases like this because it doesn't really want peace. It doesn't want to be integrated into the Western system. Everything that we've tried has failed, and yet we can't stop trying because the threat is so great. Is that out fair? Um, I would also add that um, it's highly unlikely that North Korea would use nuclear weapons on us first, but the danger is what that does to uh, North Korea's decision-making. I have nuclear weapons. That means that I can poke and prod elsewhere. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not just talking about the nuclear weapons program. I think the regime almost certainly knows that using it against the United States or anybody in the region or elsewhere is likely to lead to a regime ending response. So I don't think we're there on regime intentions. Um, The problem is what the regime feels emboldened that it can do because it has weapons and because other countries would be reluctant to strike at North Korea for fear of sparking a nuclear conflict. Kim Jong-un is sending a message here, and it's crystal clear. He wants a full-fledged nuclear capability, and right now, nothing is slowing him down.
So let's now switch tracks a bit and talk about how we got here. Now, we could go all the way back to the invention of nuclear weapons. We could definitely go back to the 1950s. But for the sake of uh, having a coherent conversation, why don't we start in 2011? That's the year that Kim Jong-un, the third member of the Kim dynasty, inherits power from his father, who's died. Today, Kim Jong-un was officially named Supreme Commander of the North Korean army. The government also referred to him for the first time as great leader, succeeding his late father, Kim Jong-il, and the government said it has no... You were at the CIA at the time, right? Yes. How had you become a North Korea watcher, and how long had you been in the agency at that point? I was at the agency for about two years, so I was a mid-career hire. Before that, I was teaching U.S. history at Hunter College in New York. I was a U.S. historian. I looked at, you know, civil war and reconstruction and the progressive era. Um, and naturally, I would end up at the CIA as a North Korea analyst. Um, <laughs> right. But um, And how does a U.S. historian become a North Korea expert at the CIA? <laughs> exactly. Um, I had focused in my graduate studies on U.S. missionaries who went abroad in the 19th century, had children and grandchildren overseas who grew up to be spies and diplomats and area studies experts during the early years of the Cold War. There are some assertions that over 50 percent of U.S. diplomats and spies and area studies, people who are founding these programs in, in U.S. universities, were children of missionaries. Um, they're everywhere. They're in Greece. They're in Turkey. They're in uh, what is now Sri Lanka. They were, you know, in China, obviously, and in Japan. But I focused on Korea because the missionaries' children were still there in government and non-government academic positions. Um, and that's where I did some uh, field work uh, when I was a Fulbright scholar there. And, you know, having being a historian and working in the archives and looking at declassified documents, I thought to myself, it would be really cool to be there at the agency and provide this analysis that somebody's going to eventually find, you know, 50, 100 years from now of my analyses on this issue. Um, so I started uh, at the agency, moved down from New York and started the agency. And I hope when they hired you, you went to your Korean immigrant father and said, see, a history degree is useful, Dad. Yes. You know, he was horrified that I got a history PhD because as an immigrant coming from South Korea, you know, he had visions of his daughters being accountants and lawyers and doctors, you know, real jobs, you know, and he had no expectation that his daughter would get a PhD in history and then ultimately end up at the CIA, but that made him pretty happy. So I had just started in early 09, and that was a really interesting time because Kim Jong-il, the father, had suffered a stroke a few months prior to my entering CIA as an analyst. Brand new pictures coming in, North Koreans weeping and wailing, collapsing in mourning after learning of the death of Kim Jong-il. The state TV announcer there unable to contain her emotions. So that was very um, dramatic. It's scary. And Kim Jong-un came to power mid-December of 2011 after his father died. Kim By following our party and people's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un's leadership, we are going to transform today's sorrow into a thousand times more strength and courage. Okay, so you're at the agency, and all of a sudden, Kim Jong-il dies, and Kim Jong-un becomes the, the new leader. First of all, how did he get the job? It's not like he exactly covered himself in academic glory when he was at school in Switzerland, um, or was a particularly distinguished intellect. Yeah, 
I think it was as much a process of elimination, and you would have to look at the three sons. Um, you had Kim Jong-nam, who was murdered in 2017 in, at the airport in Kuala Lumpur. airport of the half-brother of North Korean strongman Kim Jong-un has triggered a recall of ambassadors. We're now hearing that one of the female suspects was paid just $90 to help carry out this attack. The second son was Kim Jong-chul, who some reports say that Kim Jong-il thought that his second son was too effeminate. I, I take that to mean that he was not strong enough or aggressive enough. He was not interested at all in any anything except music. And then you have Kim Jong-un, the third son, who was competitive, was aggressive, and was probably somebody that Kim Jong-il thought like he does uh, in terms of his aggressiveness and his approach to things. Very kind of shrewd and ruthless and how he got rid of anybody who could pose a threat to him. So basically he was meaner than his brothers. Yes. <laughs> and in a dynasty, um, I think that's what matters. <laughs> right. So beyond that, what was your assessment of him when he took power and that of the agency in general? You know, it's hard to say because, you know, uh, North Korea is called the hardest of the hard targets for a reason. Um, and we saw what but what was interesting is what the regime wanted us to see. Um, and it's that, you know, he started accompanying his father on a lot of these guidances, these on the spot guidances that the Kims like to do to make sure that they touch everything and everybody uh, in the country. And Kim Jong-un started getting these honorifics. His birthplace was designated a historic landmark. Songs were created about him. And just by his appearances with his father, it was a clear and obvious sign that Kim Jong-un was the designated successor in those years between his father's stroke and uh, his death in December of 2011. You've called him in your writing a 10-foot-tall baby. What do you mean by that? When we look at North Korea, and I think it's especially true of Kim Jong-un, we tend to either overestimate or underestimate. You know, I remember seeing a New Yorker cover back in 2016 after Kim Jong-un had conducted a nuclear test that um, he is this chubby toddler in a onesie playing with nuclear weapons and tanks and bombs and ballistic missiles. He was 27, just shy of 28 when his father died and he became a leader of North Korea. Um, so that's he's just a handful of years removed from university when he was playing basketball and, you know, hanging out with his friends and doing what young adults do. To a psychological profile put together by U.S. intelligence, Kim Jong-un may feel compelled to prove just how tough he is in order to make up for his inexperience. I think underlying that assumption or perception is that he can't think clearly or that he's irrational or that he's uh, he doesn't think in the way that most uh, country leaders would calculate and calibrate. But I think when we look back on the past seven or eight years, um, he has been able to calibrate he has been adaptable, he has been flexible, and he has been able to outmove her in a lot of cases. Can you think of an anecdote or two that really demonstrated for you that he was a rational actor? Because on the other hand, we see things like the torture and killing of the American Otto Warmbier that don't yeah. seem necessarily like a rational move for a small, threatened country to make. Warmbier for more than a year, only to release him nearly a week ago in a coma. And then today... 
a tragic ending to this story with so many questions unanswered. Right. But I think that has to be put in the context of what he's been able to get away with. Uh, Kim's talent and his father's talent and that of his grandfather has been to poke and prod at a layer below that would meet the threshold for a violent reaction from the United States. So we're not going to go to war because Kim Jong-un used a nerve agent at an international airport against his half-brother. We're not going to go to war because he tested what he calls rocket launches or satellite launches because he's framing it as a satellite launch, a peaceful use of space, the North Korean regime would say. But he also understands how far his leash can go. So mm-hmm. I look back on August of 2015, not that long ago, but I remember it was a really tense time. Um, North Koreans had planted two landmines that had drifted or landmines that had drifted south and had maimed two South Korean soldiers who were doing routine patrols there. And South Korea was not going to have it. And so they were going to respond in a very robust way um, in 2015. So I think North Korea got that. And what does North Korea do? The Kim regime suggested that, hey, we should sit down and have talks. Um, And so we had some family reunions of people who were separated by the Korean War. We had some high-level dialogue between Seoul and Pyongyang. And so that was at least one example of how Kim knows to calibrate and pull back to make sure that it doesn't escalate to a point where he can't control the situation. Analysts predicted that he was too young and too inexperienced to lead the country. Well, he's proving them wrong. Okay, so let's now fast forward to January 2017. Donald Trump becomes U.S. president, and there hasn't been much action on the nuclear front in recent years uh, between the U.S. and North Korea. And then Trump becomes president, and things start out very badly. Threats are exchanged. There's a lot of name-calling. Rocket man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. And mm-hmm. I think he gets called something like a dotard yes. in return. Calling him a mentally deranged dotard or senile old man, that word now trending online. But then things change. How and when did the mood start to change for the better? In 2017, things got very tense. North Korea did a series of um, highly provocative actions, intercontinental ballistic missile testing for the first time. He did it three times. Um, He called the U.S. president names. He did a nuclear test. So I think that was Kim's way of making sure that the new president knew who was boss. Kim Jong-un's regime saying they successfully detonated a hydrogen bomb. Our chief foreign correspondent, Terry Moran. His father did a similar thing back in 2009 when President Obama came into office. And that was to wrest the initiative from the U.S., uh, make sure that everybody in the neighborhood, including the U.S. president, knew that who was going to be setting the agenda. And so in 2017, we saw a lot of heightened um, rhetoric, a lot of scary things that were happening that could have easily spiraled out of control into a devastating military conflict. But we saw Kim do a pivot in early 2018, and I think he did so for a variety of reasons. Um, One was that he had a very receptive environment. He had a South Korean president who had been calling for engagement 
in 2017, as soon as the President Moon came to power, we had a Chinese President Xi Jinping who was highly alarmed about um, what was happening between the U.S. and North Korea and wanted all sides to come to talks. And we also had um, some strong sanctions in place, this maximum pressure campaign. And so I think for a variety of reasons, Kim decided that he was going to do a pivot and start engaging. Uh, But I'd also remind your listeners that this was after Kim had said that he had completed his nuclear weapons program and that he was now going to pivot to the economic part of his dual track, this nuclear weapons plus economic prosperity policy that he's had since 2013. Okay, so he reaches out and he finds this wildly receptive audience in the body of the U.S. President Donald Trump. And this begins this very strange bromance, which continues to this day with Trump seeming to waste no opportunity to shower praise on Kim, thanking him for the beautiful letters that he gets and saying all kinds of good things about uh, him and, and his regime. But it doesn't seem to have actually made any difference, uh, has it? Uh It was worth trying because Kim Jong-un has been clear since the early years of his rule that the nuclear weapons program belongs to him. You know, when he's talking about nuclear weapons, he's right there. You know, he's at their control center. He is high-fiving the the nuclear technicians and the ballistic missile technicians. He's observing all of these ballistic missile tests. And so it made sense for to engage at the level to try to draw Kim out and see what kind of progress can be made at the highest levels. But I think what the past three engagements that President Trump has had with Kim Jong-un, it shows the the limits of this high-level diplomacy. It's clear that since we still don't have any working-level conversations, negotiations with the North Koreans, that Kim is still looking at President Trump as his only interlocutor and that he has very little incentive to do otherwise than to go directly to President Trump. If you look at some of the regime comments, it has decried Secretary of State Pompeo's role. It has excoriated the National Security Advisor Advisor Bolton. Target of North Korea media's criticism. It has told the Moon administration to back off. North Korea slammed South Korea for its upcoming joint military exercise with the U.S. next month. According to that it shouldn't concern itself with the affairs of the U.S. and North Korea, um, that Kim is still laser focused on appealing personally to President Trump. And I think that there's serious downsides to that. And has Trump gotten anything for all the charm that he's lavished on Kim? Has it changed North Korea's behavior for the better in any way, any concrete way that we can measure? If this personal diplomacy between leader to leader is working, I would have expected to see working level conversations at a minimum. And so far, we have yet to see that. Um, And I think that because of the focus on the leader-to-leader relationship, I don't think Kim has very much incentive to go beyond that because he knows where the national security advisor stands on sanctions and on maximum pressure. And he has called Secretary of State Pompeo to task for his, you know, gangster-like demands on North Korea to show its sincerity and to... um, make significant concessions. Another signpost that I would have looked at is if Kim is making significant economic reforms or loosening some aspects of his repression or decreasing the rhetoric or the regime's um, 
commitment to nuclear weapons, and we have yet to see any of those things happening. And although there are reports that some of the anti-America posters are down in Pyongyang, those posters are still in the storage lockers and they can come back as quickly as they came down. Okay, so now we come to the money part of the podcast, and this is the hard part, which is how are we going to fix this? Given that nothing has worked, Jung, can you think of anything that might actually help? You know, it's not all lost, um, and I'll be optimistic in that because we have uh, the strongest sanctions to date on the books on North Korea. Security Council unanimously approved new sanctions against North Korea this morning. The sanctions would affect many... So anything that North Korea makes money on, North Korea's big-ticket items have been sanctioned. So that has dramatically reduced North Korea's ability to generate revenue for the regime and for its weapons programs. So I think that's good. Um, I think it's also good that we have an engagement with Kim and that he is still interested to some extent on being out there, out and about and, and engaging. But I think we have to keep an eye on the prize on what the ultimate goal is, and that is North Korea completely abandoning its nuclear weapons program. I don't think Kim has made that decision yet, but that is the goal of the sanctions. That is the goal of increasing diplomatic exchanges and dialogue with our partners in the region um, and to make sure that we're all in lockstep, that it's either his weapons program or his survival, that he can't have both economic development and um, nuclear weapons and regime survival at the same time. And can you imagine a scenario where... Kim or some future North Korean leader give up their nuclear weapons? Um, I would like to believe in a future where we have a non-nuclear North Korea. I mean, otherwise we just give up and say, well, let North Korea have nuclear weapons. And I think that would be a, a terrifying option. Well, say a bit more about that, because why can't we learn to live with a nuclear North Korea the way we have with a nuclear Pakistan, which also terrified a lot of people? So the the U.S. and the international community have been working on the global nonproliferation regime. Um, And I think what happened in 2017 with Fire and Fury really brought to light how terrifying it is to have a nuclear conflict on the Korean Peninsula in Asia, not just the humanitarian effects, which would be um, devastating, but also the global economic effects would be also highly damaging. Second, uh, we have a North Korean leader who has probably decades of rule um, ahead of him, um, who is isolated, paranoid, power hungry, and represses his people as a high tolerance for other people's pain in charge of nuclear weapons. And I don't know that we are ready to rely on an East Asia or, or global security based on this one person and his whims and preferences. So, Jung, it sounds to me like you're saying that the odds of success in solving the North Korea nuclear problem aren't particularly high, but the risks, the alternatives are so uh, intolerably dangerous that we have to keep trying. That's right. That's perfect. <laughs> Jung, thank you so much thank for you. talking to us. Jung Pak is a senior fellow at Brookings and a former CIA analyst. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. 
Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. Next week on And Now the Hard Part, how the West can help Africa integrate more fully into the global economy. Leaders should be held responsible and should adopt the right policy to diversify the economy. Brookings scholar and Cameroon native Landry Signe. That's coming up next week. <laughs>